So for First uh, and Second Samuel, I want to do things a little bit differently, partly because of time restraints. I mean, this is, I think, the longest reading of the entire phase two. If you put First and Second Samuel together, that's longer than even the Gospel of John, one, two, three, John, and Revelation, just from a pure time commitment. So, and to boot, this is some of the most complex and multi-layered narrative in the Bible. This is rich literature as well as a record of history. So we just can't do justice to the nuances of this amazing stretch of Scripture. Um, but what I'm going to do is to lean on the fact that you've read it. I'm going to break it apart as we do into the macro sections. And whereas before, I would, when we'd go through sections, we would kind of do the plot and the biblical theological piece at the same time, we're going to spend a little bit longer working through the general plot of these two books and then zoom in on the eight pieces of biblical theology that I want us to consider. A couple of housekeeping things when it comes to the Christian canon at the front, and, uh, and I talked about this last week a little bit as well. We are now into the former prophets so the, the Tanakh is the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament. The Hebrew order of the books is different than the Greek order of the books. So there was a Greek translation called the Septuagint, and they reordered the books. And the Christian Bible that we have is in the, the Septuagint order. And what I'm asking you to do is to read in the Hebrew order. So you know how Jesus often refers to the law and the prophets, or the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, right? So there's the law and the prophets in Matthew 5, and Luke 24, the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Everything written about me in the law, prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What, is it, what does that mean? What is he talking about? Is he talking about uh, the first five books of the Bible, or maybe just Deuteronomy and then some of the, the written prophets, and then the book of Psalms? No. It's a shorthand for the Tanakh. Tanakh stands for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So Torah is the law, instruction. So that's the Ta in Tanakh. The Nevi'im, that's the Hebrew word for prophets, and the Nevi'im are divided into former prophets and latter prophets. So former prophets, you have the Deuteronomistic history, that's the former prophets. So you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. You'll notice no Ruth. Because Ruth is in the third section of the Tanakh, the Ketuvim. Ketuvim means the writings. So there's a, a, a third section to the Hebrew Bible, which is the writings. So when Jesus says, everything fulfilled, or about, everything written about me in the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms are, stand in as, a, as, the, as the, the flag bearer for the Ketuvim. Yes, Duncan. Chronicles are the very last two books in the Tanakh. So Chronicles are written late, very late, and they're at the very end. They're what close the Hebrew Bible. And so before you get to Matthew, if you're reading in the, in the Hebrew order, the last thing you read is a summary of Israel's history, basically, from the beginning of the, of the Tanakh to the end, because they are at the end. And so what we're doing is we're trying to read it in the Hebrew order, so when we get to Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, I'm also going to spend maybe 10 minutes just summarizing the Ketuvim, because those books all believe, uh, belong in the writings. 
So that's why you didn't read Ruth. Ruth is put where it is because it fits between Judges and Samuel chronologically. Second thing I want you to note is that 1st and 2nd Samuel are only called 1st Samuel and 2nd Samuel because they, that's where the scroll divided. But this is one book. I would even go so far as to say that the former prophets are all part of one work of literature. They, they hang together. The style is, is very much the same. So they're telling one continuous story, which is why we talked last week about how uh, the form that we have the former prophets in, they probably was fo- formalized in Babylon in the 580s, 570s, somewhere in the, after they're in exile. So some um, pastor theologian grabbed these historical court records and, and the sacred writings on their way to Babylon, sat down and wrote why they're in Babylon. That's, that's one of the major reasons that Sam, uh, jo- Judges, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are in the Bible. One of, not the only, but one of the major reasons is to explain why are God's people in Babylon. So all of that to contextualize big picture what we're talking about. So First and Second Samuel, it, it really, on a structural level, you'll see, makes sense to see them together. And we could do this for all of the former prophets. The, I, I call them the Deuteronomistic history. Uh, it's not me. It's scholarship does that. And I, I like it. I think it really represents these books well. They're trying, to, they're trying to explain what went wrong. Well, what went wrong is we broke Deuteronomy. That's the Deuteronomistic history. So you can see how this breaks down so nicely. We're, we're looking at this point. Remember, Joshua was about conquest. Judges was about just the total collapse of Israel society in the loose confederacy of judges when there was no king in Israel. And so last week, we talked about how having a king is, is super important. And so Samuel is talking about how do we get from judges to kings? That's really the, the canonical contribution of this book. How do you get from judges to kings? And is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that's those some of the tension points in this book. So it's divided into four major sections. And then there's a fifth section on the end, which we might uh, consider to be an epilogue of sorts, which I'll get to in a minute. So you look, the first major section, chapters one through eight, are really focused in on the biography of Samuel. Who's Samuel? What did he do? How did he, how did he rise up within Israel? How did he get a place of prominence? And what we're going to learn about Samuel is he's not the key figure in this drama. He, he's not the one that we want to be watching, but he's the king maker, literally. He anoints Saul, and then he anoints David. So this book is named after him because the question is, how do we get from judges to kings? Well, Samuel, he's the one that takes us from judges to kings. He's, some people would say, the last judge. And he's already starting to act like a king, right? He appoints his sons. We'll, we'll do a little macro in a minute. So then from chapters 9 through 15, and we, saw, we had a great sermon on chapter 15 today, so we see why Saul comes to an end, basically, even though he hangs around for a while. But he comes to an official end in chapter 15, and there you get a portrait of Israel's first king. Remember, we do have Abimelech from Judges, but first official king that's anointed by God, not a self-appointed king. And then in chapters 16 through 31 of 1 Samuel, you have at the beginning of that major section, God anoints David to be king, but doesn't make him king until 2 Samuel 5. 
over all Israel. So there's an already not yet. Attention that as Christians we should be familiar with. We are already this, but we have to wait. David was in a similar position. Uh, and, and Saul's kingship continued even though in chapter 16 he's possessed by an evil demon and, and we see that for the rest of his biography. And so this third major section, which is quite long, it's very significant, from chapter 16 to 31, you have two kings. You have the, you have the reigning king, Saul, and you have God's replacement of him sort of in the wings and the tension that that causes. Sort of like having two popes, but that would never happen, right? Two popes. Um, so then you come to 2 Samuel, which remember is not a new book. It is in our Bibles, but we're continuing the same story because this epilogue at the end ties back into both. And this is the longest section in Samuel, and that's, that's the reign of King David. And King David reigns from chapter 1 all the way to the end of 2 Samuel. So all of 2 Samuel basically is the reign of David, and David doesn't die until 1 Kings chapter 2. But there's reasons that it's stopped here. So and then in chapters 21 through 24, we get an epilogue. And in these chapters, this epilogue is really more like a collection of various appendices. And what's really interesting about these appendices, there's, I think, six of them. They, each appendix gives us information that we are not given when we should have been given that information as we're reading through the history. And what's the effect of that? That's delayed exposition. Why delayed exposition? Every one of those appendices forces you to go back and reread what you thought you understood. And you have to bring the new information to play. And we'll talk about that at the very end of tonight if we get there. Um, so that ties First and Second Samuel together. These are, this is information needed to properly interpret the book of Samuel, that you don't get that information until the very end. So let's just walk through the plot with a little bit more detail. I'm going to try and do this fairly quickly because you've all read it. So we have at the beginning in chapters 1 through 3 the rise of Samuel. So Hannah is weeping. She doesn't have any kids. Her husband loves her, gives her a double portion, but she doesn't have kids. It's a, it's a very familiar motif in the Bible, and you do well to cross-reference that with other barren women in the Bible. Usually barren women are going to bring a spectacular human being into the world that God is going to use. And so she conceives Samuel and as she had promised she gives Samuel to the Lord by giving him to Eli who is the high priest in Shiloh to adopt. Eli's family is a total train wreck um, abusing their power both spiritually and sexually and Eli is, is physically blind which is just highlighting his spiritual blindness. Things aren't good in Israel. In those chapters, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but we're told that Eli's house is going to fall. And then the, the narrative shifts in chapters four through six, and we have the story of, of uh, a war against the Philistines, and the, Israel loses the war. They try to take the ark to buoy their, their efforts, and God says, that's not gonna work. I'm not a trophy to be hauled out like some pagan god. And just as the prophecy had said, um, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die, and then Phinehas's uh, wife it dies giving birth, and then Eli falls over backward from his chair because he's blind and fat and off balance, and he dies. Just a terrible end. But there's Ichabod is born, 
And there's a little bit of hope in keeping with the prophecy. But in that whole section, the Philistines steal the ark. God sends plagues of tumors and mice on them. So they say, we don't want this. And the statue of Dagon falls over twice. The second time his head comes off, which proves that Dagon is nothing. And, and God, uh, the God of Israel is the only God. And so they send this, this ark back on a cart with gold tumors and gold mice to sort of try to appease Israel's God. And so it comes back, the ark comes back, and there's a great, great destruction because they mishandle the ark and so on. So they leave it for 20 years. Then we get to chapter 7 and 8, and Samuel is judging. And then in chapter 8, the elders ask for a king. Why? Because Samuel, like Eli, had sons that were, were wicked men. And nevertheless, what does Samuel do? He says, I want you to be circuit judges like me. In other words, he's establishing his own dynasty. This is a really important ch- a th- a detail for interpreting Samuel. Because we think, well, he's a prophet. He can do no wrong. Well, he, did, he made a major bonehead mistake a la Eli. And we know what happened to Eli. So with Samuel's characterization, you have to be very careful. When is Samuel speaking for God, and when is Samuel speaking for Samuel? Because he's not infallible. Now, he is a prophet of the Lord, and just as was rightly preached by Benjamin, he says, thus saith the Lord. And so that's your indication. He's on the Lord's business. But he doesn't like the idea of a king because it hurts him. Okay, that's important to know. Now we get into chapters 9 through 11. We see the rise of Saul. He's a reluctant king. He's a good son. He's the first good son described in this book. So before we hate on Saul too much, he's a good son that cares for his father. He doesn't want to be king. And everything about Saul's personality is very endearing right up until he's rejected in chapter 15, at which point a demon torments him, and he might be excused for being a bit of a downer from that point on. But right up into chapter 15, he's a good man, more or less. We'll talk about that a little bit more. He saves Jabesh-Gilead from Nahash the Ammonite. We're going to see that they uh, honor him in chapter 31. Samuel gives his big farewell. I haven't cheated anybody, have I? Okay, see you later. Good luck with kingship. It's going to be awful. And then King Saul reigns for chapters 13 through 15. Now we move into the third major section of the book, which is chapter 16 uh, through 31, the end of 1 Samuel. And this is where you see the competition between David and Saul. So you have David is anointed in chapter 16, and then he kills Goliath, right? And now his star is on the rise. He becomes Saul's music therapist in this weird twist of providence. How is, how is that all happening? Well, God is going to bring him into the royal family. He, he cuts a covenant with Jonathan, and Jonathan cuts a covenant with him. This is not about, like, best friends forever. This is about both men looking out for their best interest. To Jonathan's credit, he sees that Saul's uh, fortunes are on the dive, He's not trying to claim anything for himself. He sees David's star rising. So to Jonathan's credit, there's that. But he's trying to save himself and his family. Um, David marries the royal princess, Michal. And both Jonathan and Michal side with David over their father. This enrages Saul. And Saul tries to kill David twice with a spear. David says, this is getting a little hot in here. So he, he takes a run and he tries to leave and, and Jonathan uh, confirms that Saul's trying to kill him. So then f- through chapters 21 through 26, Saul is on the run, the wilderness of Ziph, down in En Gedi, and Saul's chasing him, chasing him, chasing him. David comes out in this, this section looking really good. 
but I don't think it's all as good as it seems. David, David has his reasons for acting the way he's reading. To his credit, he believes that God will put him on the throne eventually. So that's to his credit. Then finally, in chapters 27 through 31, we see the fall of Saul. He goes to a witch, meets up with dead Samuel, which is never good. <laughs> Samuel says, you're going to be with me this time tomorrow, and that happens. And Saul dies on Mount Gilboa. And I've been at um, Beth Shan, where Saul's body was strapped up on the wall. And do you know who came and took down his body? The men of Jabesh Gilead. Why? Because he saved them from Nahash the Ammonite. And I like that because at the very end of Saul's biography, we're reminded he wasn't a terrible guy. And he wasn't a terrible king. And the men of Jabesh Gilead understood that. They all have two eyes and all their families because King Saul protected them. There's a fitting tribute at the end of a very complicated biography on, on Saul. We get into 2 Samuel now, and we're in the fourth major section of the book of Samuel, which is the reign of David. And it starts with David becoming king, which has this, this messy civil war, which God always hates. God hates unity. Or disunity. God hates unity. God hates disunity. <laughs> and so there's this civil war between Ahimelech, uh, no, Ish-bosheth, which means man who is worthless. That, like Saul names his son. I love how, how they name their sons. Worthless man. Yeah, you can, you know, you're never going to be the king. So Ishbosheth is going to be the one who's going to reign uh, for the house of Saul, and David is against him. So you have David, who is the, the king of Judah, against Ishbosheth, who is the king of all Israel. And by 5 5, David is made king over all Israel. And then in chapters 5, 6 through 9, 13, you have this house building. We're gonna, that's a whole section, so I won't get into it much. But David begins to consolidate his power. And although he's working on a very uh, earthly level in some ways, God is using what David is doing on the earthly level to have profound spiritual implications. And in the middle of David's house building projects, is the Davidic covenant where God says, you want to build a house for yourself? You want to build a house for me? No, no, no. I'm the house builder. I'm going to build a house for you. And 2 Samuel 7 is the heart of the Old Testament, in my opinion. Everything falls apart theologically without 2 Samuel 7. So we'll look at that. Then you get into chapters 10 through 20, which is just the long decline of David. Not the fall of David, because he has what Saul never had. Unconditional promises and grace. It's really the only big difference between the two men. So even though David is on this massive downward dive, he's never rejected. God never takes away his anointing. He never torments him with, a, with an evil spirit, although there's some pretty strict discipline going on in the house of David. And we see sons raping daughters, like so David's son rapes David's daughter, and we find out, if you read carefully, so Amnon rapes Tamar. I don't think I'll have time to get into this later, so let me just give you this. Uh, Amnon rapes Tamar, but if you look closely, Absalom set it up so he would have an excuse to kill the crown prince and put himself in line for the throne. Read it carefully. You have, I forget what his cousin's name is just right now off the top of my head, but there's a quote where, where what's his name? Anyone know? Amnon's friend, Absalom's, Absalom's cousin. I forget it. But anyway, he says something, and then Absalom later says the exact same thing. 
And what the narrator is telling us, people who hang out together begin to talk alike. And so, if you read it carefully, Absalom sets up his daughter to be raped by their half, or sets up his sister to be raped by their half-brother so that he would have a reason to kill him and put himself in line for the throne. Jonadab, yes, Jonadab. Jonadab and Absalom are working together to get Amnon to rape Tamar so that Absalom can kill Amnon and take the throne. It's sick, but that's what's happening. Absalom runs away, David brings him back, and then Absalom conspires against David. David does the pre-passion walk, exactly what Jesus will do a thousand years later. Leaves Jerusalem, goes into Gethsemane, up the Mount of Olives, because he's been betrayed by Ahithophel and by his own son, just like a Judas. And Ahithophel is interesting too. In one of these appendices, we find out that Ahithophel, who is his top counselor, who is conspiring against him with, um, with Absalom, we find out that he is Bathsheba's grandfather. So he has a vested interest in bringing David down. Really amazing stuff. So that's one thing I didn't mention. In, in chapter 11, he rapes Bathsheba, murders Uriah, takes Bathsheba for her, his wife. So all these things, the decline of David. And then we, we come to the end and we get this epilogue. So that's, I missed a lot of details there, but that gives you more or less what's going on. Yes? Yeah, he did. Yeah, if you trace David's steps, if you're a first century Jew reading the gospel accounts of, the, of where Jesus went, he's retracing David, except with one notable exception. David went over the hill. Jesus stopped in Gethsemane and allowed his betrayer to catch up. And uh, so that's, that's amazing. You also have David had a Hushai. Hushai is David's friend who comes and goes and confounds the advice of Ahithophel. And Jesus says, don't you think I could call 12 legions of angels? Or don't you think I could call for my own Hushai and, and get out of this mess? But God sends a Hushai to save David, but he doesn't send a Hushai to, sa- to save the son of David. There's so much there. Like I said, we just don't have time for it. But it's pretty awesome. All right, so let's take a look. We're good. Eight themes. Eight themes that I want you to think of. Uh, these are macro biblical theological themes when you're reading through basically most of these are are true for all of the former prophets but especially they emerge here crystal clear in first and second samuel the prophetic word is a major theme of the former prophets that is there's a lot of jockeying for political power but over top of it all is the office of the prophet. And we see that with the role of Samuel. And Benjamin, you brought it out perfectly. He says, I'm here as a prophet of the Lord to speak to you. Uh, remember, I'm the one that anointed you. He, he pulls rank as the prophet. The prophet, throughout the former prophets, is going to pull rank over the king. Because he who delivers the word of God is greater when, it, when there's a sort of a, a, a power struggle than even the king. And so you see all of these uh, experiences where there's, uh, the prophetic word goes out and then you see in the narrative that it is fulfilled. 
And so what God is doing here, and this is one of the reasons it's called the former prophets, he's establishing the uh, effectiveness and the efficacy of the prophetic word. So just to give you the examples, you have Eli and Hannah. Now Eli is a total moron. He has no idea what Hannah is doing. Hannah is weeping and praying, and Eli says, get out of here, you drunk woman. Like very pastoral, right? And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm just, I just want a baby. And he says, okay, well, then go and may God give you your request. He doesn't even realize it, but he's uttering a prophetic word. And so this is like God speaking through Balaam's donkey. God can speak through anyone, even Eli, who is blind. I don't have time for any interjections. I'm so sorry. So just write it down, and then we'll, we'll get it at the end. So, so that's one. We know that Hannah does conceive. It's Samuel. And the prophetic word is brought to pass. And interestingly enough, the very first instance of a prophetic word going out through a drunk old priest, or not a drunk, a blind old priest, brings about the prophet of greatest influence in this chapter of salvation history. There's a nice irony going on there. Second one, the man of God. This anonymous man of God shows up in chapter 2 and just says, Oh, Eli, by the way, you're about to be replaced. We're downsizing your family. I know that, that I said that you were going to go in and out before me forever, but you're just a terrible family. You're a terrible priest. And so I'm going to bring a, a better man into this position. He'll have a sure house before me. What I love about this is he never says, who's this priest that's going to replace Eli? Is it Samuel? Is it Zadok? Is it Abiathar? Well, Abiathar is from the house of Eli, so it's not him. No, he doesn't say, we never are told except this sure house. I'm going to build for him a sure house. Which is exactly the language we're going to get when we're down here in 2 Samuel 7. And I would argue to you that if you look at that prophecy closely, the priest is the same man that is the king to be. And you have very early the beginning of this, this folding together of the king and the, and the priest together in one person. It's not explicit, but there's seeds to that effect. Because both the king and this priest are going to have a sure house. And, and to get the prophet, you just go back to Deuteronomy 18. A prophet like me will arise, and you get all three. That's Jesus. It's pretty cool. The Lord and Samuel, uh, this is the call of Samuel. Samuel's sleeping in the tabernacle, and he hears a voice, thinks it's Eli. It goes three times. Finally, no, it's not Eli. It's the Lord. So the Lord says, tell Eli that what the man of God said basically is going to happen, that his house is going to be destroyed. And in the very next chapter, Eli's house goes down. Samuel and Saul, you see in 1 Samuel 15, Benjamin preached on it. Saul went out to grab Saul went out to grab Samuel's cloak and it ripped and, and Samuel says, just as you have ripped my cloak, so the Lord has ripped the kingdom from your hands. And that came to pass. Then we see Nathan and David. David says, what you've done displeased the Lord. You are the man that I've been talking about. And David had said, the man who did these things, there's a parable about a sheep and you know, a nice man who has a sheep and treated his sheep like a daughter, which is kind of weird and it's amazing that David didn't pick up on what was going on there. But anyway, he says, the man who did this deserves to die, and he should repay before he dies fourfold for what he has taken. And Nathan says, you're not going to die, but you are going to pay back fourfold. And David loses four sons. The, unborn, or the born child to Bathsheba in, in, the, in the adultery, then Amnon, then Absalom, then Adonijah. 
And he says, not only that, you took a woman in private, your women are going to be violated in public. And Tamar's disgrace was a very public disgrace. Everyone knew what happened to her. And then David's ten concubines are raped on the roof of the house, the plain sight of all of Israel by Absalom during the conspiracy and the rebellion. Fulfillment of the prophetic word. I should say here, go back up to the man of God. This, this fascinates me. I preach on it, so I won't go over it too much. But remember, the sword is going to come and take down everyone in Eli's house. You get to 1 Samuel 21, and David escapes to Nob, where the priests are. He picks up the sword of Goliath and, and gets the ephod, where he can uh, basically ask God's will. And we're always wondering what's going on there. And then Saul shows up, and he's in this jealous rage. And I know that you've conspired with David, and he kills them all. And we tend to think, well, Saul, that was a bit of an overreaction. But Saul is the sword in fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy in chapter 2. And in that prophecy, it says that one man will escape to see the fall of Eli's house. And there is one priest who escapes. His name's Abimelech. And if we wondered whether or not David was conspiring with the priest at Nob, immediately Abimelech catches up with David. How does Abimelech know where David is? Because they're conspiring. Saul was right. Saul was right. And there's seven other pieces of evidence I can use to make that point. So you see, you see a major theme in First and Second Samuel is the prophetic word goes out and it always fulfills what it uh, sets out to achieve, even when it's bloody. That's one thing. Note, note that. Follow that. This keeps up in First and Second Kings. So this week, when you're reading First and Second Kings, look for a prophetic word and then look for the fulfillment of that prophetic word in the narrative. And you, the reason this is really important is when, when Nathan says, you're going to have a sure house, your kingdom is going to be established forever, and you're going to have a son who reigns over an eternal dynasty, well, we've seen the prophetic word spoken and fulfilled over and over and over again. So we get to 2 Samuel 7, we're like, yes, that will come to pass, and it will. Second major thing that we see is the exile. I can go over this really quickly. That whole episode of chapters 4 through 7, where the ark of the covenant is, is brought out, and the Philistines win the battle, the ark is taken into Philistia, and Eli's house falls, and then the ark is restored to Shiloh, eventually. Well, to not, a, not right away, but it's, it's given back to Israel. This is really ominous foreshadowing for the house of David. The fall of Eli's house foreshadows the fall of David's house, and the exile of the ark foreshadows the exile of the people. And what's, on the narrative level, why is this in there? It's because we're about to get a spectacular reign of David and Solomon, right? But at the very beginning, what God is telling us is there's going to be a big fall. But even though the house of Eli fell and the ark went into exile, uh, because of the unconditional promises given to David, even though David's tree is chopped down, there will be a a, a, a sprout, a branch that comes up from the stump of David, of Jesse. And God will not let the Davidic house go forever. And the people, like the ark, will come out of exile. So it's all narrative historical foreshadowing. We keep going now. 
kingship. Again, we hit this pretty hard last week, so I think I can do this pretty quick now. All of those verses, which we looked at last week, are pro-king verses in the Bible. So there's a lot of them. I won't repeat them. So how are we supposed to understand this? The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out uh, before us and fight our battles. This is 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20. This is a very, very difficult stretch in the narrative, and this is what I want to propose to you, that both Samuel and the people are wrong. Samuel is wrong. He thinks kingship is wrong, but he's speaking out of his own desires, his own selfish ambition. And when it says, when God says, give them a king, we're told that Samuel was displeased with the request, but not that the Lord was. And the whole book of Judges is setting up our need for a king. And the whole rest of the Bible talks about our need for a king. The request for a king is a good one. But Samuel doesn't want a king because he's not going to be that king. And when it says, God says, give them a king and tell them the ways of the king, that word is a positive word, which which is really going back to Deuteronomy 17. Read them Deuteronomy 17. Help them, Samuel. Help them to understand what kind of a king they need to have. But Samuel instead goes off on a rant. So I think Samuel's wrong. But I think the people are wrong too. Their request for a king's not wrong but they want a king like all the other nations. And here it's crystal clear. They want a military leader. And Deuteronomy 17 says, no. Your king is not to multiply horses. Your king is not to number his people. He's not to multiply silver and gold. He's not to have many concubines. He's not that kind of king. You're not going to have a king like all the other nations. Your king's sole responsibility is fidelity to the Lord. And he is to write out a copy of the law for himself. He is to teach the law to his people and to lead his people to God. But God reserves the right to be the military leader of Israel. And that's where they erred. And that's why they get Saul. If they had said, our society is falling apart, the judges are getting worse and worse, and we're in a state of total depravity and wretchedness, we need a king to lead us back to God, well, then there there would have been no Saul. But God says, I'll give you your kind of king, and it's going to be a disaster. Then he gives them David. So they're both wrong, and I think that's what makes that stretch so hard. You have to read very carefully. You have to get back into Deuteronomy. You have to understand the big picture that kingship is a good thing, but this kind of a kingship is not. And that Samuel is a man just like us, and he's got conflicted interests in this whole request. Moving on, we have providence. There are three epics or eras in the Bible where you see miracles. It's, it's actually a myth that the Bible is just packed full of supernatural miracles. There are supernatural miracles, but they're concentrated. In the days of Moses and Joshua, there were miracles. In the days of Elijah and Elisha, there were miracles. And in the days of Jesus and the apostles, there were miracles. And aside from a few here or there, there's not. And we're entering into a a, a stage of salvation history where God prefers to exercise his sovereignty through the natural affairs of human society. 
And so you see the providential hand of God much more than the miraculous intervention of God. And this is why many scholars say, well, this was written first, this is accurate, this is historical, and then they wanted to sort of create a theology and so they added these supernatural sections later. I, I reject that. I think the norm for God is to interact with us through providence. You know what I mean by that? That God is in control, but he's working through regular everyday things, just like we experience. And it's only in these three epochs of, of salvation history where he sort of peels back the curtain and steps into our human drama. And so what would be interesting to ask is why those three t moments? It's worth, worth thinking about. So in the life of David, David has to, you see in David this, uh, this tension between faith and political machination because it's even through the sin and political machination of David that God is going to bring about his purposes. And we see God working with sinful people to bring about his divine ends, which is, makes it complicated for us on the moral level. Next, this is a big question. Why was Saul rejected and David exalted? What I really want us not to answer is, well, David was righteous and Saul was wicked. What I don't want us to even say is, well, David was a better man than Saul. I would argue that from 1 Samuel 9 to 14, Saul is far superior in character to David anywhere in the Bible. He's a good son. He's not power hungry. He wins some good battles. He's a reluctant king. He, he even is submissive to Samuel, who's a real pain in the neck for, for the nascent king. He waits. The, the big moment in chapter 13 where we're like, oh, boo, Saul, boo. You know, he's on the battlefield, and he sees all this enemy coming toward him. And, and Samuel said, wait seven days. I will show up and offer the sacrifice, and then you can go into battle. So Saul waits. And Samuel doesn't show up. Samuel is late. And so rather than going to battle without entreating the Lord's favor, and his army is scattering, he's trying to hold it together for this, this embryonic kingdom. And so he says, well, I don't want to go into battle without entreating the Lord. Samuel's not here. What am I to do? He offered the sacrifice. And then lo and behold, Samuel shows up. What are you doing? I told you to wait. He's like, well, I did wait. And then Samuel says, you're going to be rejected. Notice in chapter 13, we have no indication that the Lord is saying that. We do get that in 15. So all that to say, Samuel's not a, or Saul's not a bad guy. So why is he rejected and David is exalted? It's not that God looked down and said, I like David better than Saul. So what is it? First reason, Saul was from Benjamin and David was from Judah. You're like, that's unsatisfying, but it's theologically very accurate. There's no way that Saul's going to last as the king. He's from Benjamin. You get to Genesis 49, and where do we find out? Well, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he, he uh, leans over to pray, but by evening, he has to divide it up. By contrast, Judah is a lion's cub. 
And he comes and he crouches over the prey and who's going to take it from him? Those two blessings by Jacob are totally borne out by Saul and David. Saul has the prey, the kingdom, in the morning, the first watch of the kingdom. But by evening, he has to give it away to other people. But when David comes in and he crouches over the kingdom, no one is going to take it from him. It's, it's God's divine plan. Second reason is this. Saul was under the law and David was under grace. I think this is the most important thing to understand. There was no grace for Saul. Saul got justice. So when Saul disobeyed God, and he he was disobeying Samuel, but he was also disobeying Moses, as Benjamin pointed out from Deuteronomy, and so he deserved to be rejected. Now he repented. I've sinned, I've done wrong, please pray to the Lord. And, and Samuel says, no, well, God's not going to change his mind about you. You're rejected. He, he did not receive an ounce of grace from God on this. In fact, God removed his spirit. It was never an indwelling presence of, of the spirit. And then said, Satan, have your way. No grace. David, by contrast, was every bit as wicked as Saul. I would argue, just on their natural level, worse. But he was just the, God had set his heart upon him. And this is what it means to be a man after God's own heart. To be a man after God's own heart has nothing to do with David's heart. It has everything to do with God's heart. God set God's heart on the man David. He was a man after God's heart. He was God's choice, God's sovereign choice. And, and he had the benefit of grace and unconditional promises, God's divine election, to use the words of what we're doing. God chose David and not Saul. He decided that he was going to make an example of Saul in the negative and an example of David in the positive. And that's why. And, and when we say David had some intrinsic value that was appealing to God, we are sliding into a works-based gospel. We're sliding that you can do something that would draw God to you and he would choose you because you're just that great a guy. And if that's true of David, then it could theoretically be true of any of us. But that's not how he was chosen. He was a sinner like everyone else, but God loved him. And David loved God, there's no question, because God first loved him. It was the love of God that created the, the response of faith and love that we do see in David. So David is a complex character. I'm not saying that he didn't love God or have faith, but he had that love and faith because God first loved him and God chose him. It's the same dynamic that we're experiencing here. And he rejected Saul because Saul broke the law. Yeah, election. He elected both for their purposes. The Davidic covenant I don't have time to get into all the house building, but I'll just run through them quick. There's each one of these we could talk about at length. But in these chapters, five through 10, is it? Five through nine. What you see, this whole section of the narrative is about David building his house. The Hebrew word for house can mean several things. So it can mean a personal dwelling, my house, the house, the place where I live. It can also mean the political capital of a nation. The house of is the capital. And we see in chapter 5, 6 to 10 that he captures Jerusalem to be the, the, the home base for the house of David. It can be a royal palace, and we see that he builds a royal palace in chapter 5, 11 to 12. 
It can be uh, progeny, like so heirs, children, sons. And we see he takes to himself a royal harem, and through this royal harem he produces many heirs, many sons. So he's building his house that way. Uh, it could be a political dynasty, and we see um, in chapters 5, 17 to 25, and 8, 1 to 18, we see these military victories that are establishing David as a force to be reckoned with in the, in the region. It can also be a religious temple, and this is where we get Chapter 7, having accomplished all of the rest of what any other king would want, the, the thing that David needed to complete his status in the world. So don't, don't think that David's being too, too pious. I think it's both. I think it's political and pious. But every king wanted to have a temple. He says, well, the next thing, I've got all these other aspects to my house built. Now I need a temple. And the prophet Nathan was just kind of having a lazy day. He's like, yeah, yeah, David, do whatever you want. Whatever your heart seems to do, it seems good. Nathan goes home after a very week day's work, and the Lord shows up, doesn't let Nathan sleep. and says, Nathan, you're totally wrong. I never asked David to build me a temple, a house. And the word house gets played on here. I want you to go back to David, and I want you to tell him not to build a temple. Part of this is so that David, he wasn't going to be a king like all the other kings. And then this is the Davidic covenant. I'm only going to read the bold. These are the promises that are a part of the Davidic covenant. God says to David through the prophet Nathan, I will make for you a great name. What does that remind you of? Yeah. So we've been wondering, right? We know that Isaac got the promise or the blessing that God gave to Abraham and then that blessing was passed on to Jacob and then we fi find out it went to Judah and we know that it went to Perez, I think. And then now we're like, oh, it's been passed all the way down one generation at a time. Finally, we're told what God knew in every generation that the Abrahamic blessing is now being carried by David. Okay, so that's good. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Go to the land that I will show you. Abrahamic blessing. So the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant are not all that different. They're the same. It's just being progressed. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You want to make me a house? No, I'm going to make you a house. And I, this is what that house is going to entail. I will raise up your offspring after you, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you see the repetition? So this is initially fulfilled by Solomon. Solomon builds the house that David had wanted to build, the temple. But we know that this is not about Solomon. It's about Jesus. And the word forever is really key, right? So, so in, the, in the Jewish mind at the time, they couldn't conceive of a man living forever, so they just thought there's going to be a perpetual dynasty of Davidic kings. But what we know, because more has been revealed to us, is that a son of David came and will establish a kingdom forever, and there will be one king on one throne forever. And... As you read the rest of the Old Testament from 2 Samuel 7 on, it always seems like this promise is in jeopardy. 
And the one thing, the one sure thing that we have to hold on to through the rest of the Old Testament is God always keeps His promises. And so this is why you see the prophets really wrestling with this. You know, God, you said that you were going to give David a son to sit on his throne forever, but now the, the Davidic house has been chopped down and we're in Babylon and what's going on? Now remember, whoever put this final form together is sitting in Babylon and he's not denying this. And so this is a question. Uh, a co-text that goes with this in the Old Testament is Psalm 2. If we had more time, I'd read it and love it. But basically what I would want you to see there is what we learn in Psalm 2 is that the Davidic king is the king of the Jews. And the king of the Jews is the king of the world. And God says, I'm going to destroy every other king. So if you're wise, you will enter into an alliance with the king of the Jews because the king of the Jews wins in the end. And he will reign from Zion, my holy hill, forever. So you have all your plans. You think you're going to overthrow all of these nations and take down what, this nation and that nation, but I've set my king on my holy hill and he shall reign. And I just laugh at all of your planning and scheming. Which ties right into what we've been talking about today, this morning, and then what Peter said. The king of the Jews. Not the king of the Gentiles, the king of the Jews. And we're blessed to be in alliance with him. And then through the New Testament, I don't know how we miss this, but we often do. Matthew 1.1 and Matthew 1.17, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Then you have Luke 1.30 to 33 and Luke 1.67 to 69, all about Jesus being the dynastic fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Uh, you have John 7, 40 to 43, same thing, Acts 2, 29 to 36. Dave, David died. His tomb is here. But his son, as promised, you killed and God raised him up. And this Jesus, God has made the Messiah, the Messiah and the king forever. So you've, you've misunderstood your scriptures. Romans 1, uh, 1 to 3 he was uh, the son of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God by resurrection from the dead. The son of God there is a title for the Davidic king. He, according to the flesh, genealogically, he's the son of David and he's the Davidic king of Psalm 2 and that's proven by resurrection from the dead. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ a descendant of David, raised from the dead according to my gospel. Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the branch of David, Jesus says. At the very end of the Bible. Is this going? Yeah. So, so in the New Testament, this is a really important uh, concept that we've, just, we've, we've given up on that biblical theological idea of the, king of or the son of David being the king of the world, and we've replaced it with a philosophy of I give uh, this man my sins and he gives me his righteousness, which is not wrong, but it's just not complete. And the whole thing is the Davidic king is going to come and conquer the world, but first he had to pay for the sin of the subjects of his kingdom. That's, it's, so much more could be said. Kingdom. I do want to share this before we go. This, you, we're familiar with this, right? So we've been looking at the macro typology. Now we're at a crossroads. Do we... Do we embrace the macro typology in the former prophets or is that just for the Torah? So we really have three options at this point. 
Either we can say, I saw what you were talking about in the Torah, but mm, you're kind of losing me now that we're into 1 Samuel. Or we could say, well, the there was no typology. You made it up. Or even 1 Samuel is part of the macro typology of the gospel. So just to refresh, this we've, we've talked about at length. Slavery to sin, or slaves in Egypt, that's paralleled by our slavery to sin. The Passover lamb in Exodus 12 is paralleled by the crucifixion of Jesus. The Red Sea is their baptism into Moses, which we fulfill in our believer's baptism. We go through the waters. Then they go to Mount Sinai to enter into covenant. Jesus says that when we put our faith in him, we're in the new covenant with the new Jerusalem, from the new Jerusalem. Then they're in the wilderness, walking around for 40 years, a generation, and that's our life, right? We're in the wilderness right now. We're being humbled. We're being tested. Now we've talked about last week that the conquest of Joshua, where Joshua, not Moses, leads Israel into the promised land is going to be fulfilled by the conquest of the world by Jesus. And we see it written in Scripture in Revelation 19. And they have the same name, which is fascinating. Joshua 5, we saw the commander of the army, Joshua in face to face with the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of the Lord. We see the connection. Now let's just skip over the monarchical history, which is Judges to Second Kings, and I think that we can make a really strong case for these last two. That the exile at the end of Second Kings in chapter 25, that's the climactic curse in Deuteronomy 28. And the ultimate exile for the human race is exile in the lake of fire, which cannot be undone, which we see in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. And then isn't it interesting that after Babylon, God restores the people to the land, as he said, after 70 years, and Ezra re reteaches the law, Nehemiah rebuilds the city, and you have a new Jerusalem. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. And that is Revelation 21 and 22. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. But what do we do with Judges through first King, or Second Kings? Well, there's a lot of debate about this, and I don't want to be dogmatic about it. But in Revelation 20, verse 1 to 10, John mentions a millennial kingdom that, Je that Jesus will return Revelation 19, and reign for a thousand years. And then the final judgment is in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, which is paralleled by the judgment of God against his people when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Which leaves these 10 verses where John in Revelation is talking about Jesus reigning on earth for a thousand years. We can either throw that away as symbolic and, and doesn't feature in the, in the macro typological sequence of things or, and this is where I am personally, but I, I don't, you don't need to follow me here. Some things you have to follow me because I'm just following orthodox faith. I haven't, the reason I'm nervous about this, what I'm about to say, is because I've never read it from anybody and it's, it's always dangerous to come up with something new. So I'm a little nervous about it, but I think it's worth asking, is the millennial kingdom the fulfillment of the monarchical history? Because David is the center of the monarchical history. The period of the judges is leading toward David, and all of the history after David is about the, the, how David just wasn't quite enough. 
and his sons just weren't quite good enough. But now we have the son of David who returns, takes back the earth, reigns for a thousand years, and does it right. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus didn't fail in the wilderness. Where David failed and his sons failed in the, age, in the era of the kingdom, the monarchical history, the son of David won't fail. And after he proves that the Davidic king is righteous and is able to r- rule over the world and to fulfill Psalm 2, then the curtain of history falls and then the final judgment comes and all of the curses of Deuteronomy 8 are fulfilled ultimately in exile in the lake of fire. I think, you know, it's persuasive to me, but I've never read anybody else that noticed it. So think on it. But look what happens if it is true. One continuous prophetic rehearsal all rooted in history that is fulfilled by the gospel sequentially and in order. One last thing. Did it again. You had your doubts, but I did it again. You know, we'll go like three minutes over, but that's not bad. Uh, (laughs) Appendices. I'm going to just give you a couple things to look for in each of these. There's so two, six. David and Saul's house. There's this chapter on Mephibosheth that drives me crazy when it's preached. Look at how gracious David is to Mephibosheth. He just is so kind and benevolent to Mephibosheth. That's true. And, and there's something to it. See, with David, there's always a grain of truth to it because he's complex. He's pious and faithful and he's true to his word. But there's also something else going on Mephibosheth was crippled in both of his legs. He was no threat to the throne. And what we find out in the first appendix is that David used a little rift between the Gibeonites and the Saulites, Saul's family, to eliminate all of Saul's heirs who might compete with him for the throne. He had them crucified, I think, or something. He impaled her. I can't remember. But, so when he says... Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness for the sake of my friend Jonathan? Well, he just killed the rest of them. He knows the answer to his question. He's not like sitting around saying, I just want to be a really nice guy today. I really want to be, I want to have that Mr. Rogers kind of day today. No, he's just killed all of, the, all of Saul's sons who might make a, a, an advance for the throne except for the crippled one. Is there anyone left that I could show kindness? Yeah, the crippled guy that you didn't kill at the behest of the Gibeonites. It's interesting. Then we have David's mighty men, in, and we see that in chapter 21, 15 to 22, and again down in 23, 8 to 38. So much information in, in that. You get, first of all, on a theological or a thematic level, you see that David needed other people. And you find out also there's so many things that happened in David's life and so many people that played a role in his life that, that we are only given a very limited sample of what David did which gives us a reading strategy that everything that's included, every detail is there very intentionally. There's nothing that's just thrown away because it's been heavily edited. Every detail in First and Second Samuel about David's life is intentionally put there. So that's the first thing. Second thing, we find out David wasn't Superman. He needed a group of committed men around him. We also find out that Uriah was his best friend. That, that he, Uriah was with him when he was running away from Saul. Uriah was a good man. And, and, and 
we also find out that Ahithophel's son was one of his mighty men. Ahithophel is David's top counselor who also um, had a son who was one of David's mighty men. And that his son had a daughter named Bathsheba. So Bathsheba's a little girl running around in the cave in Engedi with all these men. It just adds a level of, ugh. And so you also get motive for why Ahithophel hates David. These men have given their lives to David. They, they rebelled against King Saul for David. They, they, and so when Nathan says that this, this man had a little ewe lamb that was like his daughter, that's true. And Uriah would have gone to Ahithophel's son and said, or, uh, yeah, to Ahithophel's son and said, you know, I know that you and I are friends, but I've come to love your daughter like my own daughter. Could she be my wife? It's just all there in the appendix, and it just adds a, just a level of gut-wrenching drama and, and horror to what David did. It's not some anonymous woman that he didn't know. She had prime real estate. He could see her from his roof because her husband was the king's best friend. And so we talk about David and Jonathan. Well, if he was a good friend to Jonathan, that's debatable. If he wasn't to Uriah. Uh, in, then we get to David's private prayers. You know in 2 Samuel 1, again, a sermon that I just hate to hear, look at David running away from Saul all those years and Saul gets killed and he, he laments for him. David, you just love of enemy, love of enemy. And we just do a straight line over to the Sermon on the Mount. You, you read, read 2 Samuel 22, 1-51. 51 verses of David celebrating the death of Saul and praising God for killing Saul. So what you have in 2 Samuel 1 is David's public lament. That's the public David. This is the David that he wanted everyone to see. And David going behind um, Abner's coffin and weeping. That's the public David. But we get the private David in the appendix. So you've got to bring that into your reading of David. And then David's public last words, 23, 1 to 7, these wonderful, very faithful, robust words to the nation as David's official last words. Then you get to Second King, uh, 1 Kings 2, and you see David's private last words to Solomon. You know, be faithful, follow the Lord, and kill these people. It was much more like Godfather. So you, you start to compare public and private David, and what I want you to see is you cannot get, swallow the David's public persona, hook, line, and sinker, the way we are lo- we are, we're prone to do. You have to realize that he is a master at propaganda and public relations. And he holds his position by presenting a false facade of who he is, and we see that from the appendixes. Lastly, David and the census. This is an important one because we see here, the last word in 2 Samuel on David, we see the conflicted characterization of David. Here's a man who wants to count his army, told in Deuteronomy not to do that, because he wants to see how powerful he is. It's a lot like Saul. So God punishes him. But then he repents quite genuinely and sacrifices to God and buys the threshing floor that's going to become the Holy of Holies for the temple. And so 
the public and private David, also the political and pious David. He's a very complex man, and you need to read him accordingly. That's it. Let me pray. I want to talk to, if you haven't preached and you want to preach, I want to meet with you up here. Thank you for sticking around. I know I went a little bit over. Let's pray. God, I thank you for First and Second Samuel. I pray that you would help us to read this text. We thank you for the Davidic covenant and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Lord, as we, as we continue our, our walk through the Bible, I pray that you would open our eyes as we read First and Second Kings this week. And we give you all the glory. Thank you, Lord, for this great plan of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.